tonight's Bible reading is a long one. It's one verse, Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for that, Katie. Well, I'm on here very briefly again, so I'm just going to introduce Scott. Uh, Scott Devlin's from CMI Ministries. He's going to be coming up and speaking with us this evening. So thank you so much, and uh, we're looking forward to what you have to say to us. Thanks, Scott. Um, just attach this. Thanks a lot for having me here. Um, it's a real honor to speak to you. Um, you're the body of Christ. Um, thank you for being here. And you have what's more precious than anything that this world has to offer. More precious than gold is faith in your heart. It's an amazing gift, isn't it? So it's a pleasure to be here. So yeah, I, I work as a scientist, speaker, and write for Creation Ministries International. And I, I think there's quite a lot of my colleagues in the room. Can you put your hand up if you work for CMI? Or if you're a volunteer? So there's quite a lot of us here. <laughs> So you can ask questions of me and other people as well. Who, who heard um, Don speak earlier, Dr. Don Batten? Who was here earlier? Cool, great. Yeah, so he's my boss. So after this talk, hey, who, who, goes, who goes to this church? Who knows Don? Does anyone know Don? Okay, great. Okay, so after this talk, tell Don it was great. It was a really good talk because he's my boss. So, yeah, that's, that helped me out. Um, okay, so we've, let's just see if this works because... We had three guys doing an amazing job. Um, okay. Does that work? Is it going to work? I'm pressing forward, guys. That's what I'm, I'm doing. So I've got a presentation to show you. Oh, there we go. Cool. Great. <laughs> okay. So, ape to man, fact to fiction. We're going to talk about human evolution, its roots and impacts, and we're going to separate the fact from the fiction. Now, my background is geophysics. Um, I studied geophysics and I worked as a geophysicist. So, it's an earth science. So, I was wondering, and you might be wondering, well, what have I got to do with human evolution? Um, well, other than science, I really enjoy evangelism, and this is me outside my old home in London. Uh, and I've found that one of the most powerful truths I can share with people before giving the gospel is, number one, that they are not an accident. And number two, which comes out, number one, that what they do matters. These were really powerful truths that changed my life when I realized God was real. But the story of human evolution is antithetical to this. It's um, you are an evolved monkey. Um, what you do doesn't really matter. Uh, monkey see, monkey do. It's like you may as well follow the desires of your flesh, and you don't have any ultimate accountability. Uh, so, yeah, if we've evolved from monkeys, then really what I say to people on the street doesn't count. When I say, uh, you are divinely created by God, and what you do matters. Um, I find that that gets people. You're divinely created by God. We're told a lie so much. I was told that lie growing up through school. We're told a lie so much that when you hear you're divinely created by God, just strikes a chord with you. I, I find it strikes a chord with people walking past. Um, okay, so I became more familiar with the scientific understanding of human evolution about two years ago uh, when I had the opportunity to make a YouTube video with a professional videographer. 
And so the scientific advisors for this script were my boss again there, Dr. Don Batten, Dr. Peter Line, and Dr. Carl Wieland. They're all CMI scientists, and between them, they have over 100 years of biology, hominid fossil, neuroscience, and creation research. So today, I want to convey something to you that I got to learn from them and from some of the research I did uh, that I found out, wow, there's some real myths out there that we're being taught, and they're not too hard to deconstruct. So I want to give you uh, what I learned as I made this video. And I also want to show you the video. So first of all, I'll talk about human evolution. Where did this idea come from? And then I'm going to talk about why does this matter? Why does the ape to man um, image matter? And then I'll show you the video that we made. That'll be like a sneak peek. It's not on YouTube yet, um, but we'll get it on there soon. And, and then they're going to talk about modern genetics, because that was some of the thing that I found out, wow, I've really been sold a lie in this, modern genetics, even as a believer. I thought that it proved, I thought that it was good evidence on the evolution side, not on the creation side, but I'm going to show you something different to that. Okay, where from? Where did this idea that we evolved from apes come from? Who knows who this man is? Now, none of my colleagues, you can't answer that. So, someone else? Darwin, yeah, Charles Darwin. Um, now, it wouldn't have been too many years ago, I got my... Darwin and my Dawkins mixed up. So don't worry if you don't know your Darwin against your Dawkins. Darwin is, um, lived in the 19th century, and he's most famous for his book, The Origin of Species, which he released in 1859. But it wasn't until he released his second book, The Descent of Man, that his views about humans' origins became very clear. In this book, he says, man is descended from a hairy tail quadrupod, and that we are descended from barbarians. He also classifies Australian aboriginals and native Africans as lower races than Caucasians. Now, people have argued that Darwin himself was not a racist, but it's not really the man that I'm after. It's the idea. It's the philosophy. Um, and it's a destructive philosophy, and famous atheist biologist Stephen Jay Gould said this about Darwinism. Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So this, whilst the slave trade in the UK ended in the early 19th century, it was Darwinism that brought about racism being uh, credible in the scientific eye and then in the public eye. So, anyone for toppling a Darwin statue? I'm arcing back to last summer. But before we jump to conclusions, let's investigate. Harmless ideas or a destructive philosophy that even affects us today? So, this man here, his name is Otter Benger. Not Darwin at the bottom, but the arrow pointing to this man here. He's a pygmy African man from the Belgian Congo. He was put on display at the Monkey House in the Bronx Zoo in 1904. His teeth were filed down to sharp points, and he was encouraged to snarl at visitors to project a more animal-like appearance. It was widely believed at the time, even by eminent scientists, that blacks were evolutionary inferior to Caucasians. This is just 100 years ago. In chapter 4 of the book Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler concluded that Darwinism is the only basis for a successful Germany. We see this outworked in that when Hitler became Germany's dictator, one of the first laws that he passed in 1933 was the sterilization law. 
Over 400,000 people were forcibly sterilized. That is, they were given an operation so that they could no longer have kids. They were the evolutionary inferior. They were the intellectually disabled, the mentally ill, the epileptic, the blind, the deaf, and everyone who is physically deformed. Um, so Hitler's genocide program included thousands of concentration camps. Auschwitz is famous, but there's many others. And in total, 17 million people died in concentration camps. Now, you might say, well, this is awful. Hitler was awful. Everyone condemns Hitler. He might have misconstrued Darwin. Um, the problem is, I could draw a lot of lines here. I don't have time to go through it all, but I could, we could say Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, in the 20th century, it was the, they call it the bloodiest century because we had these dictators kill over 100 million people, off more of their own people than we've seen killed at war during that same century. All of them, the thing they all had in common was they were a Darwinist. Their philosophical ideas came from Darwinian evolution. Okay, you say, well, that's all in the past, but even today, here in Australia, we see the effects of Darwin's thinking. Survival of the fittest. We're soon going to lose all Down syndrome people because we're not allowing them to be born. Since the 1990s, tests have been available to test for Down syndrome whilst the baby is in the womb. And now, statistics say that in Western Australia, 93% of prenatal diagnoses are aborted. That is, 93% of the time when you find out that your baby has Down syndrome, that baby is going to die. Reminds me of Isaiah 58, uh, verse 6. Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Now, as Christians, we can and should pursue some of these great missions, fighting for the end of slavery and fighting for the ending of abortion. But, and, I'm, and if, you've got, if you guys are involved, anyone involved in that kind of stuff, ending abortion or ending slavery? They're great things to pursue, but um, we must realize that a person's worldview instructs their thinking in every area. The devil's the father of lies, and he's sowing lies into our youth. This is a science textbook for year 10 students. Um, is anyone, anyone, who's at school? Who's at secondary school here? Anyone? Most people, who's at university? Yeah, it's for university students, cool. Okay. Um, so this image here, Quite simply, if this image is true, Christianity is not. Now, you might have heard, actually, no, we can uh, join these two things together. We can, join human we can join evolution with Christianity. We can mesh it. But the problem is there's a lot of bumpy points, and it doesn't quite work. And famous atheists can point this out. And this is a famous atheist, Frank Zindler, and he explains the problem quite simply. The most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there is no need of salvation. If there is no need of salvation, there is no need of a savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. So he's saying if human evolution is true, that there wasn't really ever an Adam and Eve, then there was no original sin. 
Because the one thing we have in common, uh, if I never meet you again, the one thing we have in common, unless the Lord returns sooner, we will die. We live very different lives, but all of us will die. And that's a result of the curse, Genesis 3.19, to dust you shall return. But what's the order? The order is first man sins. And before that, God did not want us, there was not death in the world before then. So the issue with biological evolution is that it says it does away with original sin. It does away with the curse. And if it does away with the curse, then why did Jesus come? Jesus died and rose from the grave. He's the only man that's ever raised from the grave and is still alive today. And we are going to follow in like suit if we trust him. Praise God we have that promise. He, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. But if you try and include evolution, death is very good. Death is how you get from one species to another. It's how you get from one kind of animal to another kind of animal. It's an upward progression. But in Christianity, in the Bible, death is bad. Okay, I'm going to show you um, the video, and hopefully the sound will work. So this is, it's just about four minutes long. Nope, sound's not working. So you guys controlling it from the back, or shall I start it again? I'll try it again. Well, the sound effects are there. Interesting. Okay. What do you reckon? Shall I skip it? Skip on. Okay. We'll um. I could talk you through it, couldn't I? <laughs> okay, so basically what we're doing is, uh, is deconstructing this image that's so popular. It's, it's seen everywhere. And at the start, I was saying, look, it's seen on everything. It's seen in Coca-Cola adverts. You see it on T-shirts. Um, and sometimes see it on computer screens with things passing in front of it. <laughs> and so, so the idea is we want, we're trying to deconstruct each part of it and say, okay, this is what we actually find. Um, and we make, we make a little bit of fun there. <laughs> so as Neanderthal man, actually some of the things that we find him with, we find that he plays musical instruments. His brain size was slightly larger than modern humans today. Um, and so like all the things that we find about Neanderthal man is that he's a man. And so what you find in this lineup is actually... Oh, there we go. I'll be quiet. Soda adverts and everything in between. But what if I were to tell you that if we're to be honest with the evidence that we have, this picture should look more like this? Let me explain. On the left is what is believed to be the first ape, known as Proconsul, and on the right is a human called Homo sapiens. But what scientific evidence is there for everything else in this image? The transitional species. Let's find out. We'll start with Homo neanderthalensis, you might know him as Neanderthal man. Recent discoveries have shown that Neanderthal man made and wore jewelry, played instruments, used tools, and wore makeup. We've even found that his brain was the same or slightly larger than the average human living today. In other words, Neanderthal man was actually just a man. What about Homo erectus? 
Recent discoveries have shown that Homo erectus made tools, engaged in artwork, spoke intelligent language, and made and sailed boats. In other words, Homo erectus was also just a man. Now we'll come back to Homo habilis in a moment, but first, let me show you something. Have you ever heard of Lucy, the most famous so-called ape man, paraded in our museums, one of the very first Australopithecus afarensis species ever to be found? But what does the evidence reveal? She had a skull that was sloped and ape-like, nothing like human skulls. Fingers that were curved, not at all like human fingers. Toes that were curved, not at all like human toes. Wrists that had the ability to lock for knuckle walking, and a knee structure that was compatible with life in trees. So Lucy and her kind swung from trees and looked like today's apes. Lucy is an extinct type of ape. As we've just seen, Homo sapiens, Neanderthal man, and Homo erectus were all men. Australopithecus afarensis and Procouncil were both apes. Considering the ubiquity of the evolutionary icon, we'd really want to see some strong evidence for Homo habilis, the pivotal point of transition between stoop ape and upright man, between basic instinct and intelligent thought, between animal noise and intelligent speech. The only problem is, in the words of Ian Tattersall, Homo habilis is a wastebasket taxon, little more than a convenient recipient for a motley assortment of hominin fossils. Other scientists referred to him as a garbage bag because the bones we have for him are a mixture of human and ape bones. In other words, Homo habilis never existed. I think evolutionary professor Bernard Woods sums this up well. Our progress from ape to human looks so smooth, so tidy, it's such a beguiling image that even the experts are at loath to let it go. But it is an illusion. With the lack of evidence and agreement on the ape-human transition forms, why is this not happening? Or this? And is a better explanation that man and apes have always coexisted and reproduced according to their own kind as stated in Genesis 1. links and you see them reported, uh, you can put them into three categories. One, they're either a human, kind of downgraded to look like an ape, or they're an ape upgraded to look like a human. And the third category is they're a mixture of the two sets of bones. Um, but of course, their perspective is naturalism, right? Our perspective as, bi as Bible believers is that there is a supernatural creator who created the world. But if you're, if you're believing in naturalism, so it's, naturalism is atheism, uh, if you're believing in that, then you have to see this progression and you will, you'll project that on there. So some of the extra things that I would have included in the video but I found really fascinating that I want to tell you about is, here's a quick, here's a quick one. Um, so here we have uh, primates in order of their brain weight. We've got humans at the top and gorillas second. So gorillas are about tw twice to two and a half times as heavy in their weight as a human, yet their brain is almost three times as small. So there's this huge, um, um, huge gap that needs to be bridged. So you'd imagine if there was some in-between species, if there were transitional species between uh, apes and men, then you would imagine that they would bridge this huge gap of brain capacity. And, 
But the thing is, Australopithecus afarensis um, actually comes below a gor gorilla, more uh, in the region of an orangutan. And Neanderthal man, as I said, he actually has a brain that's bigger than humans. So this gap is not bridged. Um, so I thought that was a, a big problem for them. And one other interesting thing I want to show you about the reconstructions. So this is probably one of the best skulls that we have, Australopithecus afarensis. And a reconstruction appeared in the National Geographic in 1996, and it looked like this. And uh, before I recognized why, I found this picture a little bit freaky, a little bit strange. Anyone else identify with that? It's a bit weird, yeah, okay. Can you tell me why? Why is it a bit, why do you find it freaky? Yeah, go, go on. The eyes are really weird. Why are the eyes weird? Say again. Yeah, they look like human eyes. Why do they look like human eyes? Hey, good, good, good point. They're, they're not actually, it's a model, so it's not, it looks like there's a human in there, doesn't it? Like, it looks like there's a human in a monkey mask, but it's not, it's a model. Um, uh, but what they've done is they've put human-looking eyes, and it's the white of the eye. So apes do not, apes, chimpanzees, monkeys, they don't have whites in their eyes. That's unique to humans. And actually, a lot of nonverbal communication comes through the whites of our eyes. Sometimes if you get a chimp really looking one way, you can see there is like white right at the back, but basically they've got huge... Uh, brown bits, and you can't see any white. Um, so this is what the sculptor said. <laughs> the sculptor said, I wanted to get a human soul into this ape-like face to indicate something about where he was headed. So that was the sculptor that made it. Okay, so you'll see this time and time again, and I'm just giving you as a key to watch out for. When you see the next missing link, you'll see whites in their eyes. Okay, modern genetics. So I said I was going to talk about this, and this is what I found really exciting, because Darwin didn't have access to this 150 years ago. In fact, the human genome has only been fully mapped since the year 2003, when the Human Genome Project was finished. So after 13 years of research, we mapped the human genome. Uh, now, modern genetics is showing us that the Bible's history is true. And I was fascinated to find that out, but there was a number of myths that I found that I believed, and it, re it was really surprising to find out. And I want to see if you guys have heard these same things. Um, so the Human Genome Project, initially they found that 2% of our DNA, so in every single cell in your body, you've got 37 trillion cells, and every single cell in the nucleus of that cell is DNA, 3 billion letters of code. Amazing. But they found out that code, 2% of it, only 2%, codes for proteins. So you only need 2% of that to make the building blocks of who you are. So what does this other 98% do? Well, because of evolutionary beliefs, and actually this supports evolution, was it, it's junk. So has anyone heard that junk DNA? Junk DNA, yeah, I'd heard that too, and I thought, okay, we've got 98% junk DNA. Um, now, junk DNA became great, evolu great evidence for evolution, but really from a creationist perspective, and a lot of the creationist scientists were saying, you know what, we're going to find a use for that 98%. Because if we're divinely made by an intelligent creator, he's not going to make junk. Um, yeah, okay, there might be some mutations along the way that are a result of the fall, but surely it's just us. We're the ones that have got a bit of junk in our mind. We just need to learn what, how the creators made it. And sure enough, what happened? Um, it, since the early 2000s, many studies have confirmed that junk DNA is actually functional. And this is just a short list of some of the functions of that 98% that we used to think was junk. Alternate splicing, pseudogene RNA interfer interference, 
uh, intronic elements. Anyway, it just goes on. You don't need to know what they are, but it does stuff. That's the point. It does things. Um, so really, this is not correct. And um, this man here, Ewan Biney, he is the lead project coordinator of the ENCODE project. Has anyone heard that, the ENCODE project? It's not as famous, but someone knows it at the back. That it's not as famous, but it's the new human genome project. It's more recent. Um, it's a similar, very large scale. Um, anyway, what what he said was, um, it's likely. Oh, sorry. First of all, I'll tell you. He they found the ENCODE project found actually 80% of the human genome is functional. So that 2% has suddenly gone to 80%. And this is what he said. He said it's likely the 80% will go to 100% was still finding out. So maybe he had less junk in his mind and he was more forward thinking. Um, we don't really have any large chunks of DNA, of redundant DNA. This metaphor of junk DNA is not that useful. That's what he said. And I don't think he's a Christian as far as I know, but um, he's, he's a scientist and he's studying this. So, not yet, so junk DNA, that's wrong. Okay, another one. Who's heard 99% uh, of our DNA is the same as chimps? Must have heard that one, yeah? That one's a bit more popular. Um, and this proves that we've got a common ancestor. Now, this statistic comes with the unspoken assumption that the way that they got that was they lined up the human DNA and the chimp DNA, and they did a letter-by-letter letter comparison and found out, okay, it's just 1% different. The rest of it's the same. Sounds reasonable, right? When you hear that fact, that's what I thought they did. That's not what they do. <laughs> and I'm going to let an evolutionary YouTube channel explain how they actually count it. So this is, these not, they're not Christians, they're not coming from our side, but they, they explain how they get the 99%. So let's see if this video works. This is shorter. Yeah, cool. ...and human genomes, those single-letter differences were easy to tally, but the big mismatch sections weren't. For example, if a genetic paragraph thousands of letters long appears twice in a human scroll, but only once in its chimp counterpart, should that second human copy count as thousands of changes or just one? And what about identical paragraphs that appear in both genomes, but in different places, or in reverse order, or broken up into pieces? Rather than monkey around with these difficult questions, the researchers simply excluded all the large mismatch sections, a whopping 1.3 billion letters in all, and performed a letter-by-letter -letter comparison on the remaining 2.4 billion, which turned out to be 98.77% identical. So, Yes, we share 99% of our DNA with chimps if we ignore 18% of their genome and 25% of ours. Okay, so that, that explains it pretty quick, I thought. So we've got to ignore 25% of, of the human genome and 18% of the chimp genome, and then we can compare them because then we can line them up. Uh, so that's the problem. So that kind of... Uh, difference between humans and chimps seems more realistic to, to what we see. But you, you might say, well, actually, you know, there's still over 50% similarity there. Um, surely that still proves common designer, um, a common ancestor, sorry. <laughs> but, but we would say, no, it's actually a common designer. And think about this as well. If God's designed the world for us to live in, he's designed certain... Um, things for us to eat, and chimps eat similar things, and they breathe the same air, should we not actually have similar DNA? Should we not have similar pieces, similar function? Um, and also, think about this. I've heard that 80, I've heard reported 88% of our DNA is similar to mice, and 50% similar to a banana. 
So are we half banana? No, the, the answer is no. The answer is if we were not similar to the foods that we eat, if our, if our genomes were not similar, we would not be able to process them because our genome um, and it codes for proteins. So we recognize, our body recognizes the food we eat. Say we had totally, we were very different from bananas and chimps and everything else, then probably the only thing we could eat would be each other. So God knew what he was doing. Okay. So most people say, uh, some creationist researchers and even some secular researchers say kind of 85%, 90%, that's a more realistic figure. 99% is, is old hat. Okay, so, and now we've had chance to study a lot of genomes from around the world. And that we've found that the differences between all humans amounts to about 0.2%. So there's a gaping gap. We're 99.8% similar to everyone around the world. Doesn't matter what ethnic group you're from, we're 99.8% similar. And so with the chimps sitting at about 85% similar, there's this huge gap that evolution has to bridge. Uh, actually, we, that's too many, that's too big of a gap, even in evolutionary time. So what that also tells us is that we're one human family. We're all related. So, whilst your DNA from the nucleus of your cells is a mix from your mother and your father, right? You've got traits from your mum and your dad, and sometimes you might see a trait, I don't know, you've got the eye color of your grandma or something like this, because it always gets mixed up from generation to generation. But there's a small section of DNA that's not mixed up. Um, and actually, there's two parts that are not mixed up, and one of them is called mitochondrial DNA. Now, you might be familiar with this if you've ever done an inheritance test. Who's done an inheritance test where you give your saliva and you... I know you've done it. Anyone else? No. Yeah? Um, anyway, so in every single cell, we have this uh, little thing called mitochondria. It's the powerhouse of the cell. You might have heard that phrase. But inside mitochondria, is what's called mitochondrial DNA. That's not part of the nucleus, but that DNA, it's a very short amount of DNA. It's only 16,000 letters, only 16,000 base pairs. So it's much shorter, it's a much shorter amount of DNA that's in the, in the um, nucleus of the, of the cell. But this DNA does not get jumbled up. It gets passed down mother to daughter, mother to daughter, mother to daughter. Now this is uh, really interesting because it means that we can track things. We can track our inheritance. And that's why I was saying if you've, if you've done that, you might, you might have heard of mitochondria. Now, the amazing thing about this is, as we have gone up the lines, as secular scientists have studied mitochondrial DNA of lots of people living on the planet from lots of different places, they see that the pattern of mutation, there's only a small amount of mutations within mitochondria, but the pattern shows them that we are all descended from one woman. I was amazed when I heard this. And they call that woman mitochondrial Eve. Incredible, isn't it? Um, very similar, a Y chromosome. What makes us men, why we're different to women, is we have a Y chromosome. Every single cell in our body tells us we're a male. I don't think people understand that these days, but, but it's true. Or every single cell in your body tells you that you're a woman. Um, a woman or a male. Uh, and... 
the Y chromosome can get passed down from male, uh, from father to son, father to son, father to son. And a similar thing can be done. And of course, you might have guessed, we've got Y chromosome Adam. Actually, every single male is descended from one man. But of course, secular scientists are trying hard to differentiate between mitochondrial Eve, Y chromosome Adam, and the biblical Eve and the biblical Adam. Now, first of all, they do this by saying, actually, when mitochondrial Eve lived, there were lots of other women. There was about 10,000 people living at that time. And the, the, what happened was, by random chance, we managed only one mitochondrial um, DNA survived. I, only that woman passed down daughters, and no one else did. So that's how they get around that. And a similar thing for Y chromosome Adam. Um, and they also say that they didn't live, they, they lived about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. So that's different to the biblical Adam and Eve. But I still thought this was funny because if you remember that quote from the atheist, he says, we now know that Adam and Eve never were real people. But of course, that was from 1996. So it's an outdated quote. There's mitochondrial Eve and there's Y chromosome Adam. But another thing that they try and do is they try and separate how far they lived. Because like, if mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam lived around about the same time, Sounds a bit too much like the Bible. <laughs> but what's happening more recently, uh, this, is, this is a Nature article commenting on two um, recent papers from 2013, and it says genetic Adam and Eve did not live too far apart in time. And now, if you look up when Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve lived, the, um, there's a range of dates, a range of years, and they cross over. So now it's possible, even in the secular scientific eye, that... Adam and Eve lived together, lived at the same time. Um, but they're also finding that it's hard to project this 100, 200,000 years. This says gene mutations began showing up in the last 5,000 years of human evolution because there's only a small amount of differences. So the way they get this 200,000 years is not based on empirical mutation rates. It's based on evolutionary beliefs about the fossil record, about um, radiometric dating, and that's how they get this 200,000 years. They assume that we are related to chimps. And remember, it was 85% similar and 99.8% uh, similar. So when you bridge this big gap, and that's in the nuclear DNA, but similar with the mitochondrial DNA, when you bridge this big gap, it's gonna take a long time. You need a lot of mutations, so therefore you need um, Sorry, it, it's going to, they have a long time and therefore they have a really slow mutation rate. But now we can measure the actual mutation rate. And when we do that, we get mitochondrial leave about 6,000 years. And we get a Y chromosome atom at about 4,500 years. Now, now there's, there's error bars in this, like 1,000-year error bars. And this is done by a creationist. Um, but the secular scientists are getting similar ages when they use the empirical evidence. When they, when they compare humans to humans, they get similar ages. And the Y chromosome Adam is actually Y chromosome Noah. I can explain more about that later. Okay, so here's a comment from an evolutionary biologist. It says, if the high mutation rates seen in some human pedigrees were used to calculate the age of our most recent female common ancestor, she would have lived just 6,000 years ago, a date more consistent with the biblical Eve than the mitochondrial Eve. Um, one of my colleagues in America, Dr. Robert Carter, a geneticist, said, modern genetics has discovered the main outline of Genesis, including the creation, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Genetics is really, really interesting because you can go back in history. 
Um, and if you want to find out more, that's a quote from this DVD. I don't think we've got it, but I think you can download it. Mitochondrial Eve and the Three Daughters of Noah. Um, now, if you want to find out more and you want the latest information, I'd really recommend this DVD. It's dismantled. It came out just last year. And this has got a lot of what I've been saying, plus more, about the latest genetics research. And I would be proud to give that to a university professor. It's really well made. Um, so if you want to challenge someone or you want to look at it yourself, I'd really recommend that. Uh, so that brings me on to what can we do. So given this information, what can, what can you do? First of all, I want to encourage you, um, well, the Bible encourages us that we should demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And I believe today, um, the thing that sets itself up as the greatest pretension, the thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God today is evolution. Um, it's appealed to as the logical basis for ungodly legislation. It's the reason why we can say, you know what, that Romans 1, no, that's fine. It says God has revealed himself through his creation. Oh, no, he hasn't. It's a random accident. So really, this is a big argument that needs to be demolished. And I want to encourage you, first of all, demolish it in your own minds. I've just spoke for a short time, and you might have more questions. And I'd love to answer them if we get time. But also, do a bit of research. Find out, because get those arguments. If there's some arguments, questions that you have about creation, about evolution, I encourage you, get them answered. That will be a great boost for your own faith. That's what I found for mine. And secondly, let's go out and save people out of the murky waters. Now, you might need to get a bit equipped to do this rescue mission, just like this man is here. He's equipped, ready to save people. And uh, we, we supply this creation magazine, and that's our number one resource for equipping you. And that's because um, there's a lot of books and DVDs that we sell that you can look at. You can look at our website. But the great thing about this is it comes through your door. And I would really recommend if you've got kids going through high school, they really need a, a different influence. You're getting this through the TV, you're getting it through school, nature documentaries, when you go to museums, and we need to stem the tide and to get something a little bit different. And this is our number one resource because it comes straight to your door and it's going to fill your house with something different. Um, I just want to give this a short testimony. This guy here on the right, the older guy, his name is Vin Lopez, and he wrote into us uh, and he gave this testimony. He said, look, about 26 years ago, I became a believer and... I started looking into creation evolution, and he talked a lot about it at the dinner table. And his son, so 26 years ago, his son who's getting married there, um, was younger, but was listening to, it, listening to these discussions. And when his son was in year 10, he said, Dad, we've started learning biological evolution in class. And his dad said, my advice to you, son, would be stay quiet. You know what's the truth is? You need to pass your exams. Just stay quiet. Pass your exams. Um, next day, his son comes to his dad and says, Dad, I couldn't stay quiet. I had to say something. So his son um, started talking to the teacher. And that started a two-week classroom debate with the teacher. And outside of the classroom, his son would meet um, the, other people, his other, the other people in his class. And they would come up to him and they would say, what you say makes a lot more sense than the teacher. We really believe what you're saying. So I just thought that was such an encouraging testimony for me. And, and what the dad says, he says, during that two-week period, he said, um, the evolutionary, the teachers, the biological teachers' knowledge of evolution was no match to your website's resources. <laughs> so I just thought, ah, oh, so good. Praise God that we're able to make this impact. So I, I'd really encourage you um, 
If you know someone with school-age kids, if you need to get equipped yourself, I want to encourage you to get our magazine, and you can sign up for it at the back. Um, and if you want to sign up someone else, you can do this. One of my colleagues signed up some of his relatives, and some of them have become believers. So if you want to do that, you just fill out the bottom, bottom bit there. So I think it's about $32 for a one-year subscription. Um, but we're, we're a nonprofit organization, and we exist to get the information out there. So if money is an issue for you at the moment, just tell us. If you need this magazine, you recognize you need it, or you know someone that needs it, just tell us. We, we have people that sponsor that will we'll give you a one-year subscription. Now, if you want to sign up today, does anyone already get this magazine? Yeah, there's a few of you. Okay, if you want to resubscribe today, we'll still give you these extra things. So if you get a three-year subscription, you get a $15 voucher. Another resource I want to recommend to you before I leave is the Creation Answers book. Now, I was telling you I, I do some street evangelism, and afterwards I get these questions. Uh, what about human evolution, which we talked about? Um, what about the dinosaurs? Uh, what about aliens? Um, what about the population size? What about ice cores? What about billions of years? I get those kind of questions. Has anyone had those questions asked of you? Has anyone asked you those kind of questions? Yeah. Okay, so this book has basically all, we've got all these different books, but this one has all of the answers all in a condensed form. So I want to ask you, if you've had someone that's asked you that, would you buy them this book? Would you get them the book and give it to them? Or, or maybe get it for yourself, read it, and then talk to them, or, or do both. But um, they're simple answers, and we can get equipped, and we can be effective in evangelism. And there's also the website, creation.com. Um, use that. It's very easy to remember, creation.com. And use that search bar. I use it like a, a Google search. So if you've got a question about origins relating to theology or science, you can use that. And we also have an email service called Infobytes, and we'll send you a, a Every two weeks, we send you an email about things that are happening in the world, and we'll give you a biblical viewpoint on that. And if you want to sign up for that, you get a free video. Creatures do change, but it's not evolution, by Dr. Don over there. And so that, I, I'd like you to sign up because what this gets, if you don't know the difference between, um, between uh, evolution from one kind of animal to another and natural selection. So you know creatures do change. I mean, the title's really it. Creatures do change, but it's not evolution. And that's a really important basic thing to get, that actually we do see change. We're not denying change, but it's not what we're told is evolution. And so that's, that's a really good thing to get. Okay, so I'm going to summarize now. Um, as wonderful as apes are, you are not one. You are divinely created in the image of God. There's no one like you, and you're totally unique. Whilst you're related to everyone in the world, and there's only 0.2% DNA difference, that 0.2% is unique to you. God appreciates you. He knows you. And if he's missing anything, um, it would be your attention and affection. He loves to be with you. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So God knows we're all descended from the same person, and he knows you're sitting here 2021. He knows where you live, and he knows who you are. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So if you're sitting here today, maybe someone invited you. Maybe you're here and you don't have Jesus as the king of your heart. You don't have assurance of salvation. I want to tell you that 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It said he is not far from each one of us. It's a simple yes to Jesus. And I would urge you, please, repent of your sin. Turn to him before um, the last and great day. And we'll get to be together forever. And if you're sitting here and you're a Christian and you've not known what to do about these issues or these questions before, I want to encourage you, get equipped, get on our email list, look up the website, get the magazine, just get some of those answers. Get the answers for your own mind and get your answers for your family and friends. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to me. And um, yeah, I'll stick around for a while. If, if, I don't know if you want to do open questions, otherwise I will, I'll stick around the table. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, guys. Should I sit down?